Let's go to God now in prayer. Lord, you are very great. You're the God of heaven and earth, and your greatness is more than we can fathom. It's more than we can express. We do thank you, O God, that we can use our bodies to demonstrate something of our sense of wonder at who you are and what you have done and what you are doing and what you have promised to do. We thank you for the mystery of your being. You're unseen. You're infinite. You're eternal. You're the uncreated creator. You're the sustainer of all things. We thank you, O God, for the privilege and the responsibility which you've given to us, having made us in your image. You've You've called us to give you glory, to give you pleasure, to give you what you deserve. And whilst we are sad that so many ignore you, so many are unaware of you, so many are unconcerned about the privileges and the responsibilities of being made in your image, We thank you that you have so worked in our hearts that we can be in this place of worship along with so many others in our town, indeed so many others around the world who are intent today to benefit from the means of grace. We do thank you, O God, that you've given us voices, and we won't only use these voices to cheer for our favorite sports team. We won't only use these voices to communicate with each other. We'll also use our voices to give you praise. We'll use our voices to pray to you. We'll use our voices to speak of your greatness and your worth. We thank you for our voices. We thank you, O God, that we can add our voice to the melodious sounds of the birds as they sing your praise. And we can add our songs to the songs being sung in heaven. We thank you that we can bring gifts with our hands. We thank you, O God, that you have entrusted us with so much and you are so faithful. You are kind and generous. And we so long to be like you. We so long to honor you in our stewardship. And we thank you for the faithfulness of your people here and your blessing to us, your blessing upon us. We thank you, O God, that now we can, having read your word, And having sung in response to your word, we can pray to you as we mention individual needs. Thank you that we can invoke your presence amongst us and ask you, please bless us and warm our hearts and alert our minds and inform us, shine your light into dark places. But in addition, we can ask you, O God, please bless individuals who you have made precious in our world. And we do want to thank you, O God, that you have brought Jeff Blackburn and Judy von Breda into our world. We thank you for these two individuals, O God. You know their individual life stories. We do want to pray for Judy today in her widowhood. We pray that you would keep renewing her internally as she feels her visible external reality degenerating in age. We thank you for Judy, O God, and we pray your blessing upon her. We are privileged to know that you have blessed her through all the difficulties of raising two sets of twins. We don't know anyone else like that. I don't. Your grace was sufficient for Judy and her husband to raise five children. And we pray your continued blessing upon her having been with her all these years, through all the difficulties that she has faced, including losing her husband. We pray that you'd continue to sustain her, that you'd give her much joy and hope as she trusts in Christ Jesus, the Savior of sinners. So bless Judy, O God. Thank you that you brought her through these recent difficult days after her fall. 
And we pray for much blessing and much comfort and much encouragement in her life. We do want to pray for Jeff Blackburn today, O oh God. And we pray for this brother as he continues to adjust to his retired status. We pray for him, O oh God, in his new endeavor in the hospitality industry. We do want to pray for Jeff, O oh God, for his two sons, Jonathan and Michael. And we pray for your grace in their lives as in his. Strengthen Jeff, O oh God. Encourage him. Mature him in the faith. Give him much grace and let him go from strength to strength and from one degree of glory to another. We commend Jeff and Judy to you, O oh God. Be glorified in them and through them and by them. We do want to pray, O oh God, for ourselves as worshipers. Thank you that even at this time of the year when everything seems to be winding down, that we can join with visitors who are coming to George. And we pray, O oh God, that we would be faithful worshipers, setting aside this first day of the week as we have done today. Help us to worship you, O oh God. Help us not to wander off during this time of changed routines. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be disciplined and determined. Help us to indeed be your people. What we pray for ourselves, we pray for others. And we do think today, as we continue to pray for the Enchia Church family here in George, we want to pray for the Enchia Kerk in Denewurt. And we pray for Domini Gideon Volskenk. We pray for your people gathered there under his care. And even as we read 1 Peter 5, we pray for him in his shepherdly role as an under-shepherd working for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. Bless Gideon Volskenk. Bless all the people there who you have gathered into that family, O God. Let them shine forth your glory. Let them live out the gospel, we pray. Let them bow in humble submission and obedience to your word. So we pray for this church, this church here in this town in which you have placed us. When we think of our own town, we think of other towns. Indeed, we want to think of other countries, and we think of the country of Zambia today. And we are so thankful, O oh God, as we look up and down Africa, we are thankful for what you have done in the country of Zambia. Surely, your spirit has been actively at work in that city, uh, in that country. And we think especially of your work in Lusaka and your work in the Copper Belt. But not exclusively, you are at work throughout Zambia. And we thank you for the brothers and sisters that are personally known to us in that place. Glorify yourself in the church, the wider church in the country of Zambia, we pray. We thank you, O oh God, for the exciting entrance of boats and caravans and bicycles and motorbikes as people flock down to George to the garden route for their December vacation. Thank you, O oh God, that this time in our country, in our culture, is a time of relaxation and leisure and rest. We thank you for the work that has been done. We thank you for the privilege of holidays. And how we pray, O oh God, that as you bring holiday makers down to George, that you would allow them to be exposed to life-giving truth, gospel truth. O oh God, we pray. We think of, of uh, Strandtins, and we think of all the efforts that various Christians, your people, are making in various settings up and down the garden route, seeking to influence others with gospel light. Bless those efforts, we pray. Bless visitors to our town, to our region. Glorify yourself as a result. Lord, we are concerned about our country. We are concerned about our leaders. We are concerned about our infrastructure. You have humbled us this week as we have sat in the darkness with a load shedding. Thank you for every reminder that without you we can do nothing. Thank you for every reminder of the privileges that you give to us, none of which we deserve. We don't deserve an electric, electricity supply. We don't. Many people do without it. And indeed, you bless them in it. 
We thank you for the fact that many people have had to do without, without uh, television and without the internet for a couple of hours at a time. And this has been a, a wonderful reminder of just how sophisticated and how distracting our lives have become because of our electronics. So we pray for ourselves. We pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. Be merciful to us, O oh God, we pray. And as we turn to your word now, won't you hear this prayer that we bring to you in song? Holy Spirit, living breath of God, won't you breathe new life into our willing souls as we listen, as we concentrate, as we do business with you? Won't you do business with us, we pray. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together then and sing this prayer before we turn our attention to the Word. Well, we thank God for the opportunity to have some variety in our music, and uh, we're so thankful for the sound of the cornet, which we don't have this morning, and our guitarists are both taking a break, and 
Linton is always up front, but we forced him into the straitjacket of the pew uh, to, to be a singer amongst us rather than up front. But it's lovely to have the options that we do as a, a church family who love to sing the praises of God. Well, although it was uh, nearly 28 years ago now, I vividly recall the day in seminary class when one of the students asked the lecturer, Dr. Rex Matthew, boss, the man said, that's what we used to call Flexi Rexy, boss. He was the principal and he was a loved giant in the faith. So this uh, student stood up and said, boss, if a married man confided to you during pastoral counseling that he had committed adultery, would you advise him to go and confess that to his wife? You can imagine how we were all sitting on the edge of our seats. How was the boss going to answer this question? Would you advise a man who was putting the cards on the table in pastoral counseling, I committed adultery, would you advise him to go and tell that to his wife? Well, you can imagine the long and hotly contested class debate that ensued. And at the center of that very stimulating pastoral discussion, I'm sure you'll appreciate there lie a whole host of critical, intersecting, even competing realities. I mean, how would you answer the question? But before you formulate your final answer, let me just point out to you that as you think about how to answer that question, should the adulterous man go and confess to his wife, appreciate the reality of guilt and the relief derived from confession coming clean. Because if I recall correctly, in that particular instance, it wasn't adultery that was committed recently. It was adultery that was committed many years ago that had festered in the soul and in a moment of honesty needed to be brought out. The reality of guilt and the relief derived from confession. But in addition to that, the need to speak the truth, to be honest, and the wisdom required in doing so, because I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that we can actually be unkind in speaking the truth. If I tell you that I'm not happy to see you when you come to my house, and I think your hair looks ridiculous, I'm being honest, but that's very unkind, isn't it? I can't go around telling all the truth all the time. That's just unwise. It's unkind. So yes, we want to speak the truth, but do we speak all the truth all the time under all circumstances? That's not a slam dunk rhetorical question. We need to appreciate the righteous intentions for faithfulness and yet the sinful embrace of unfaithfulness. Everyone intends to be faithful. And yet few people really are faithful. We can make our own emotional burdens the destructive and corrosive burdens of those with whom we share them. So in one sense, the the calculus that needed to be worked through in counseling is, yes, you're bearing this burden of your guilt... Isn't your punishment now to bear that burden alone for the rest of your life? Because if you go and share it with your wife, now you make it her problem as well. It's worth thinking through. What are the ingredients required to gradually rebuild a marriage that has been devastated by selfishness, lust, and deceit? Because we are all aware, aren't we, of the fragile nature of trust and the relational covenant confidence that comes. So one of the things that needs to be thought through by the adulterous husband is do you want to go and smash that? You have already smashed it. 
But do you actually want to go and smash it now in the understanding and the emotions of your wife? And of course, the, the big covering under and around this whole thing is the perplexing reality that we are sexual, sensual creatures. All of us are. Some more overtly than others. Now, last week we spoke about murder. This week we want to go deeper. We want to speak about war. Last week, murder. This week, war. As we spoke about murder last week from the sixth commandment that forbids murder, we, we contemplated the horizontal expression of love toward our neighbor and the God-given responsibility to preserve human life. Now today, as we shift our focus from the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment, we're going to be forced by Almighty God to speak about things that are actually even more complex and deeper than the things we spoke about last week. There are some internal realities regarding our sinfulness that wage war against our soul. And I'm sure you'll appreciate that whilst both these things are very serious, murder and adultery, you realize there's an aspect to what we're discussing today that is so personal and private and hidden. And all the while, it's waging war against our soul. To quote the words of 1 Peter 2.11, the passions of the flesh wage war against the soul. And that's not only in the experience of the adulterer, but in the experience of everyone who knows the reality of the passions of the flesh. And so we have much to talk about this morning. And as we speak about the seventh commandment, I'm sure you'll appreciate with me the need for us to be realistic about positive things. Positive things like the incredible joy and the privilege of sex in marriage. The constructive emotional intensity and the ecstasy that God has given to married couples to enjoy each other's bodies. Isn't that fantastic? We Christians must stop being prudish about this. Sex is good if it's enjoyed where God intended it to be enjoyed. We don't have to feel embarrassed about that. We don't have to blush. Sex is God's idea. And we praise Him for it. So let's be positive as we look at this seventh commandment. But of necessity, because we are sinners in a sin-cursed world, we also need to speak very negatively about the corrosive effects of guilt for past unfaithfulness. We need to speak negatively about the pervasive effects of our perversions and our fleshly passions. We need to speak negatively about the reality, especially for men, of visual temptation and stimulation. The temptation to live as schizophrenics. What I mean by that is we all know what it is in our respectability to live a visible life that looks so fine. But actually, behind the scenes, we're living another life, an imaginary life, a life that may be in, on the internet with some illicit relationship that has some reality in time and space, or it may have no reality in time and space, and space at all. It might just be between our ears. But we're living as two people, the real, visible, married one and the other one. And that's true for men and for women. And of course, we need to speak about the twist that the Lord Jesus Christ himself put upon this particular commandment. So we're going to go to two passages of Scripture. The first one, as you would expect, is in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, just one verse. You shall not commit adultery. Now, please notice the word not there. There was a translation of Scripture that came to be known as the Wicked Bible, where there was a typographical error. And verse 14 said, you shall commit adultery. 
And of course, many people were faithful to the scriptures there. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's our text verse in verse 14 of Exodus 20. But we also want to go to a New Testament interpretation that Jesus gave. Won't you go with me to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew 5, verse 27. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is restating the law, so to speak. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's Exodus 20, verse 14. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, those two passages of Scripture are there before us. And we have already said that the ours is a murderous age. We thought about that last week. And I trust that you've been giving some thought to the fact that we are all so easily entertained by death and violence, that we are participating in a, a culture of death where we speak positively, it would seem, more and more even as Christians, we speak positively about abortion and about suicide and about euthanasia. And yet, on the other hand, we have the strange, inconsistent opposition to the death penalty for convicted murderers and the growing opposition to hunting animals and eating meat products. Those two things just don't seem to fit together. That's the murderous age. But even more socially toxic and spiritually destructive may be the reality that in addition to our age being a murderous age, our age is also an adulterous age, a promiscuous age. Because not only are we entertained by by death and violence, More pervasive and actually more corrosive is the reality that we are addicted and entertained by casual sex. You can name movies on one hand where there is no casual sex. It's absolutely pervasive. It's in our comedy It's in our drama. It's in our documentaries. It's always before us. The casual sex, the hookup culture, the friends with benefits. Extramarital sexual activity is always in our faces. Illicit romance, pornography, the redefinition of marriage after 2,000 years of Christian teaching. Suddenly now we, our generation, has wised up to the reality. And all our forefathers have defined marriage so narrowly, in such bigoted ways, but now we are expanding our horizons and we are redefining things that God has been so plain about. And at the very heart of the seventh commandment, I trust you appreciate this and that you'll be able to take this away with you and suck on it that at the very heart of the seventh commandment lie beautiful concepts. Think with me for a moment of the beauty of fidelity, the beauty of faithfulness, an Afrikaans getrouheid. Isn't that a lovely concept? Faithfulness. Faithful. Year after year after year. Situation after situation faithfulness, fidelity. But then there's a second concept that is the other side of the coin, so to speak, and that is the the concept of chastity. Fidelity and chastity. Exclusiveness. Reserve. Here is a a oulik Afrikaanse woord. Kuisheid. Kuisheid. I had to grab my Afrikaans dictionary at that point. But I did recall hearing it in my past. Kaisait. Chastity. It's a lovely word. Some of you young people, you've never heard that word fidelity, have you? 
Maybe you see fidelity gods around. But add those two words to your vocabulary and see if you can bring them out in a sentence at lunchtime today. Fidelity and chastity. But think about them. Wonderful concepts that God has given us. And they become all the more wonderful when you think of what so many people are telling us about sex today. They're telling us that it's a private matter between two consenting adults. You Christians must get your nose out of our business. What two consenting adults do, it doesn't matter who they are and where they are and what they're doing, they're both adults and they're both consenting, so end of story. Well, can you speak about fidelity and chastity in that kind of atmosphere? What about the phrase, no one gets hurt? What are you guys getting your knickers in a knot about? No one got hurt. What about the phrase, what I do in private is nobody's business? That sentence isn't very far from our lips, isn't it? Even even as Christians, what I do in private is nobody's business. Well, the issue is, is it in private? Is it in private? That's the big question, isn't it? That's the million-dollar question. Is it nobody's business? But of course, you'll appreciate that such reasoning disregards two principles. The first principle is the principle of sowing and reaping. By God's design, he's told us in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When we think about the seventh commandment, when we think about our sexuality and our privacy and our consent, Let's think about the principle of sowing and reaping. But then let's secondly also think about the reality in marriage of union on the one hand and communion on the other. The formal covenant that is made between two people bringing about their union, leading progressively to physical, emotional, social, and spiritual bonding. And I'm just giving you a a groundwork, because in a moment we're going to ask the question, what duties are required by the seventh commandment and what actions are forbidden? But into this setting, we want to, or underneath the setting, we want to put these two principles on the table, the principle of sowing and reaping and the principle of union and communion. You can create a union very easily, but can you really build the richness of the communion between husband and wife, if there isn't fidelity and chastity. How easily that can be destroyed. Essentially what we're talking about is the mysterious connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. That's the reality. The connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. By God's design, these two realities are closely allied. The one feeds off the other. Well then, let's ask the question, what duties are required by the seventh commandment? Well, a couple. So we're speaking constructively, positively. We're going to speak about what is prohibited or what is forbidden by the seventh commandment in a moment. But first, let's speak about what is required. What are the the positive things that the seventh commandment puts before us? Number one, to be chaste in body, mind, and affections. To be chaste, that's chastity. First Thessalonians 4.4, each one of you must know to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in passions of lust like those who do not know God. Why? Because we've been called to holiness and not to impurity. Job 31 verse 1 speaks of making a covenant with your eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. And I mean, brothers, let's just be honest. That is not easy. That is not easy. 
because you're sitting there at the robot and she walks past the front of your car. And the curve of her hips. You've almost got to clap your hands over your eyes. She walks into your office. Face first. Can you make a covenant with your eyes not to look lustfully at a woman? Can you be chaste in your body and your mind and your affections? That's huge. That's difficult. Let's acknowledge that. Let's, let's fight the fight. Let's enter the war. This is a war. It's a war for our affections. It's a war for our eyeballs. Secondly, to be chaste in words and behavior. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. 1 Peter 3, 2 speaks of our conduct that is respectful and pure. This purity. Don't you sense that that sort of flows out of fidelity and chastity? It's just, it's just got the aroma of purity. Thirdly, Preserving chastity in ourselves and in others. 1 Corinthians 7.2 Because of our temptations to sexual immorality, each one should have their own spouse to whom they give conjugal rights. Strong passions are designed by God to drive us to marry. Some of our young people need us to pray for them in that regard because they can feel their passions eating them up. We need to pray for them. Bring good marriage partners into their lives. Oh God, please. Because we care about our brothers and sisters and we don't want these things to wage war against their souls. We care for them. So we pray about preserving chastity in ourselves and in others. And we want to keep chaste company. Proverbs 2 and Proverbs 5. You can read them on your own, but they speak so clearly and so explicitly about the forbidden woman, the adulteress with her smooth words. And we must keep to the paths of righteousness. We can't follow her like an ox to the slaughter because when you go in there, you don't come out alive. We must avoid seductive company. We need to be modest in our dress. I'm so thankful that we don't have a problem in our church. But in many churches, if you were aware of the details behind the scenes, this is a huge issue. The girls up front, short skirts, Spaghetti, spaghetti tops. We were at the beach on Thursday. My word. I realized just what a sinner I am again. Because all these bodies in their bikinis, it's almost a good reason to stay away from the beach. First Timothy 2.9 Respectable apparel with modesty and self-control We need to help our daughters and our granddaughters understand that boys have eyes. And their eyes are connected to their imaginations. And their imaginations are sinful because they've got all kinds of things flowing through their body making them mad. And so the seventh commandment teaches us not to withhold affection and intimacy in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 to 5 is quite clear about husbands and wives not depriving each other of sexual fulfillment in the marriage. Now if this thing needs to be spoken about and there needs to be some openness and honesty and transparency and frankness, then that will be good. But husbands and wives must appreciate one of the realities of marriage is sex. That doesn't suddenly end when you turn 50. It doesn't. I can tell you. One of the biggest complexities in many marriages is that the husband wants more 
than his wife is willing to give him. It might be the other way around too. We need to be honest about these things. It's a very real thing. I think sexless marriages are not helpful. But I'll leave it there to the relief of many, I'm sure. But let's elevate the profile of marriage in the minds of the next generation. Hebrews 13 foretells us that the marriage bed must be held in honor by all and the marriage bed must be kept undefiled. So that's the positive side. Let's go to the negative side. What are the sins forbidden by the seventh commandment? Obviously, adultery. Adultery technically is where one or both partners to the act are married. One or both of the parties are working against their own marriage vows. They promise to be exclusively the property of another, and they're breaking that. That's adultery. But included under adultery is the reality of fornication, where both parties are unmarried, teenagers, varsity students, older unmarried people don't have the freedom just to hook up and have friends with benefits. That's fornication. That is forbidden by the seventh commandment. We really should take the time to read Romans 1 verses 24 to 27. Because where people push down the knowledge of God, there is this this very devastating threefold God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. And what did he give them over to in their pushing down of their consciences? Because they know God, and they refuse to acknowledge God, and they refuse to thank God. God gives them over to sexual impurity, and increasingly to sexual impurity of an unnatural kind, one with another. Adultery and fornication. Kevin DeYoung has a wonderful little section in his book. And he has a, a whole book where he, where he speaks in more detail about these three Greek words, porneia, arsenokoites, and epithumia. These three Greek words that, that speak about all these aspects of our sexuality that just are so sin-laden. But let's be quite clear that this seventh commandment goes further and it speaks about rape and incest and sodomy and prostitution and masturbation and pedophilia. These are all things that we're familiar with and we dare not blush here as if somehow this is beyond the scope. It's not. These are real things. And men should speak wisely to one another about these things. But they should not be part of our entertainment. We need to speak about the lustful look. Ephesians, uh, sorry, Matthew 5.29, we saw it in our, in our text passage, the second text passage, looking at a woman with lustful intent. The evil thoughts of adultery and sexual immorality reside in our hearts. And that's really where you need to get to as you begin to think about this thing. It's all there. It's all there. And every now and then it pops out. Colossians 3.5 says that we need to put to death what is earthly in us. And then it lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. 2 Peter 2.14 speaks of eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin. Isn't that descriptive? Isn't that descriptive? You think of the man supposedly working late at night, but actually he's rewarding himself now. He's had a hard day's work, and he's just going to go to some of those sites, those sites that he often goes to. He's just going to go there, and you can see his eyes. They're full of adultery. Insatiable. Insatiable for sin. Enticing unsteady souls, they have hearts trained in greed. The seventh commandment speaks against coarse 
talk, foolish talk, crude joking. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4, it's quite explicit about that. How much of our humor is just sexual? Sexual innuendo. You just realize, don't you, beloved, this thing is so woven in and folded in, baked into the cake, that this is a challenge. That God's word must smash us so that we ask, Lord, who can rescue us from this body of sin? Because this is designed to drive us to Christ. Make me new. Please make me new. I'm tired of it. Why do I go to those sites? Why do I click on that thing? I know what's there. I know what I feel like afterwards. But I go and I go and I go. But let's come to a far more controversial area. Strange that it's controversial. But the whole issue of divorce and remarriage needs to be looked at and appreciated because Matthew 5.32 is quite clear about the consequences of some remarriages following divorces that, that happened under certain disallowable circumstances. There's no doubt, there's no doubt that in the Western morality, the widespread acceptance of no-fault divorce has knocked over a whole lot of subsequent dominoes. The invention of the birth control pill, likewise. These things are all linked to social values and morality. And we should not have any holy cows that can't be discussed and examined under the light of God's word. But I do want to read you one passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because there really does need to be clarity. There needs to be clarity regarding sexual morality and we live in a very confusing age. And Paul says it Clearly, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You say, Well, of course I know that. But then he goes on to say, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, we've given a whole list of who fits into that category, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so I want to hurry on to to end with some application. But before we get there, we could speak of the intentionality that underlies adultery. Adultery doesn't just happen. You don't slip into adultery. You fall in love, yes. But adultery happens with very clearly defined intentional steps. And it's worth pausing and thinking through how that happens. And so we need to know ourselves. We need to know our own cycles of lustful vulnerability. Brothers, Please don't look down at your shoes when I speak to you today about the buildup of seminal fluid in your body. You need to be aware of this thing and how it makes you vulnerable. We all know as men how certain days she can walk past the front of our car in virtually nothing and we won't see her. But other days she can walk past in a coat and we'll just... It's the buildup of seminal fluid in our bodies. We need to understand this. We need to help our sons understand this. Women need to appreciate their their monthly cycle and how they become more vulnerable at certain times and, and more fragile and more needy. It's just simply a fact of our bodies and the intricacy of our bodies. And so we need, beloved, we need to cultivate intimacy with God. We need to cultivate a fear of God, knowing that He sees and He hears all things. The adulterer has 
taught himself the lie that no one sees. What I do in private is no one's business. It's not in private. God is there. God is there. God was there when you flirted with her at the office. God was there when you made an opportunity to be alone with her in her office. God was there when you worked out a way of inviting her for lunch. God was there. I've known in my own heart that to be separated from your spouse for prolonged periods is dangerous. To go on a month-long business tour overseas, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for trouble. Being far from home and thinking that you are anonymous is dangerous. All these people that you're bumping into and rubbing shoulders with might not know you. They might not know that you're not married to that person sitting opposite you at the table. But God knows. God knows. It's interesting to note from Leviticus 20 that adultery is a capital crime. You can be put to death for adultery. It's essentially a heart issue. And we need to think through the issue of inappropriate intimacy, casual touching, the scheming deceit, the lingering look, the flirtatious advance. We need to maintain appropriate social relational distance. Let's end off with four aspects of practical application. Number one, we need to view our sexuality as a gift from God. We need to pray about it. We need to speak to God about it. We need to be prepared to speak to each other about it. Marriage, the creation of Adam and Eve, and the procreation that God gave them in their union were all God's ideas. The Song of Solomon, an unashamedly erotic depiction of romantic sensual love, is in the Bible. Let's stop being embarrassed by it. The church for too long has been prudish about these things. And so they've happened in, a, in, a, in hidden compartments. Let's bring them to the surface. Let's smash all the, the covering and let the light of God shine in there. It's precisely in order to protect the joy of marriage and the joy of sex in marriage that God has given us this seventh commandment. But before we move off this point about our sexuality, let's be very clear about this. We must be very careful to speak in biblical categories. We must be very careful to speak in biblical categories. The only sexual attraction that God blesses is heterosexual. I'll say it again, because we must be prepared to say it. There are a thousand strategic moments where we need to say it. If you keep quiet at that moment, you are guilty. When the conversation goes about homosexual love and homosexual attraction and homosexual intimacy, you and I need to be praying about sensitive ways of speaking up. Because What is absolutely clear from Scripture is that the only sexual attraction that God blesses is heterosexual. Anything else is clearly and consistently depicted in the Bible as unnatural and against nature. Let us not cave in to the pressure that we are under to reinterpret these things. Because you will. You will give in because none of us wants to be unpopular. None of us wants to be the party pooper at the bride. But then secondly, the second practical application is let's be be appreciative of the internal as well as the external realities of our relationship with the unseen, all-seeing God. Let's keep a close check on our lusts, on our thoughts, on our passions, on our desires and our fantasies. Be very aware Beloved, those moments of mental arousal in your head that draw you into some kind of warm, pleasant thought cocoon which quickens your pulse in a tantalizing way. It can be 10,000 things, but monitor it. Be aware of it because you're in danger. 
In that moment, you are in danger. That's where you've got to fight the war. They're internal and they're external realities. And the reality is simply this, that if Christ and his absolute all-pervasive moral purity are not in some growing way your treasure and your desire, then it is highly unlikely that his sin-atoning blood can ever be your eternal refuge. Righteousness has got practical implications in the privacy of our bedrooms. Number three, let's give much thought and prayer to the gracious God-ordained reality of marriage, biblically defined, as a visible depiction of Christ and the church, a self-sacrificing, costly love on the one side, and a faithful, submissive obedience, these two nourishing each other to the glory of God. That's the gospel. That's marriage. That's the church. That's the Savior. But then finally, number four, and with this I end, never think that your sexual sin in the past is beyond God's forgiveness. You know the burden that you carry for past sinfulness. You'd like to call it past indiscretions, past peccadilloes, past moments of weakness, You can define it and describe it as you like, but you know what you carry around in your heart. Don't ever think that any of those things are beyond the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. If you will repent of your sin, if you will come and tell God that you're sorry for that, that you didn't didn't just sin against your spouse, you sinned against God. When David was on the balcony and he saw Bathsheba and he lingered, when he should have run like Joseph did when Potiphar's wife made her overtures, Joseph ran, David stood, and when he finally came to his senses, he realized that his repentance needed to be toward God first and foremost. And the reality is, that you can't undo your past foolishness. You can't. You simply can't. You can't turn back the clock. You wish you could, but you can't. But what you can do, what the gospel summons you to do, come clean. Come to Christ. Own up. Lay yourself before Him and ask Him, please wash me. Please forgive me. Please let the righteousness of your Son be my righteousness, because I have none of my own. This, this seventh commandment exposes us, doesn't it? But the gospel comforts us. Come to Christ. You can be made new. You can be a new creature in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we really do want to be able to say, as we are about to sing, that it is well with my soul. But together we want to ask you, O God, to deal with us in relation to this reality of the seventh commandment and our complex sexuality. We are living in difficult days. We are being absolutely marinated in a culture that is steeped in sexual promiscuity of all the wrong kinds. And it is taking its toll on us. And so we simply ask you today, be merciful to us, O God. Let this commandment do its work. Let this hammer in the hands of the Spirit break open what needs to be broken open. And then give us what we need to come to Christ, to flee to Christ, to cling to Christ, and to know that by faith all repentant sinners are reconciled to you because of the person and work of your Son. Please, God, let us know this reality in a growing way, not only in our own lives, not only in our own church, but far afield we pray. 
glorify yourself as we come to terms with this pervasive toxin in our society, this toxin in our own hearts. Help us, please. We plead with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's end.